0: Well, what a great day. It's been amazing, hasn't it? A chance to celebrate our kids, to hear a little about what they've been learning, uh, to encourage them to keep following Jesus. It's a pretty common type of event, isn't it, this time of year? There's the school presentation nights, the end-of-year dance concerts, the music performances, the sports awards nights. Uh, as activities finish for the year, it's the chance to stop and recognise and appreciate our kids to focus on them and what they've achieved. So it's a great passage to read, wasn't it? It it fitted in really well. I didn't pick it. It just happened to be coming up next as we've been studying Matthew about how we should notice kids and protect them and value them. Now, in some ways, that's pretty easy, isn't it? But Jesus is saying far more than that. He's saying we need to become like little children. To even enter the kingdom, you have to change and become like a little child. But then, once you're in the kingdom, he's saying that the whole nature of the kingdom of heaven is about valuing and protecting little ones, not just children, but insignificant, unappreciated ones. God's kingdom is upside down compared to the way we see things. Uh, What the world despises... And looks down on heaven values. What the world values and pursues, heaven dismisses as worthless. The disciples want to be great, but Jesus says that true greatness isn't about being first or best or smartest. If you want to be great, you have to change and humble yourself. Now, in today's world, that's completely countercultural and revolutionary, isn't it? In today's world, adults move on from childhood. They develop, they mature, they put childish ways behind them. Uh, Ever onwards, ever upwards. That's the natural way of doing things. Uh, Life mottos are all about advancement and self-improvement and change. Uh, Milton Berle, um, famous American TV host, said, "'If opportunity doesn't knock, build a door.' Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, from you know, one end to the other, Mahatma Gandhi said, we must become the change we wish to see in the world. Conrad uh, Hilton, uh, founder of the Hilton Hotel chain, said, success seems to be connected with action. Successful people keep moving. They make mistakes, but they don't quit. Uh, now, all of these mottos uh, about how great people develop and change and move forward. But Jesus, Jesus is saying to be truly great, you have to go back. The quality of greatest value in God's kingdom is childlike humility. Can I suggest making that your life motto? Be humble like a child. That's the way to true greatness. Jesus will love it though, but I suggest you may not want to mention it as your life motto in your next job interview. It's not the sort of quality employers are generally looking for. They value the ambitious, hard-working, overachievers. That'll get you the promotion. They're the ones who get the best jobs. And it's those same sort of values that the disciples were showing at the start of this chapter. Verse 1, they come to Jesus and they ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Theoretically, it's possible they were talking generally. Maybe they'd been having a theological, historic discussion comparing the relative merits of Abraham and Moses and John the Baptist. Uh, Which one of them's the greatest? That could have been what they're doing, but my guess is they weren't. My guess is it was more personal that the question was really, which of us is the greatest? It's pretty common when men get together, isn't it? We like to turn everything into a competition. Who can hit the golf ball the furthest? Skim the stone the most number of times? Catch the most fish or the biggest fish? Cook the best barbecue? Or perhaps it's a competition about who earns the most or has the most respected or influential job or the most valuable real estate or who's building the most significance and leaving the greatest legacy but I don't actually think women are that much different. Stereotypically, they may not want to win, but it's very common for women to compare themselves with other women. To compare looks, or family, or behaviour of children, or fashion sense, or housekeeping, or body weight, or how needed they are by their loved ones. All of us, male, female, whatever, we we want to measure up well before other people. We don't like to miss out. Seconds, we don't like to miss out on attention or fun or juicy gossip. No one likes being overlooked or ridiculed or ignored or rejected. Let's be honest, all of us want to be first. It's human nature. And the disciples are no different. Which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Perhaps we only have to look to the previous chapter to see what may have started the discussion. Perhaps Peter, James, and John have come down from the mountain. They've seen Jesus' transfiguration, an amazing privilege. And Jesus has told them not to tell anyone until he's been raised from the dead what they've seen. They've got a secret. They're in the inner circle. They're closer to Jesus than the others. And then when they come down the mountain and they meet the rest, they find out that the other disciples have failed. They haven't been able to cast out a demon. And Jesus calls them unbelieving and perverse. So you can imagine that Peter, James and John can't help feeling a little superior. And just perhaps they couldn't resist letting the other disciples know about it. And Jesus has to deal with the tail end of that argument. Who's the greatest, they ask. But rather than answer, he speaks to a small child instead. Come here and stand in the middle of us. The child obeys. One little child surrounded by a group of grown men. The contrast is remarkable. The picture is stark. Only then does Jesus turn to the disciples and answer their question with a child right there in their midst. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Forget being first in the kingdom, you can't even get in unless you change your perspective, your priorities, your ways of thinking. You can't even get in until you develop your childlikeness. But it's not childlikeness in general. Jesus is quite specific. He's not thinking about a child's unwillingness to share, impatience, silliness, grumpiness when they don't get enough sleep. Now, there there are obviously some aspects of being a child that Jesus is not thinking of. In verse 4, he makes it clear which particular way we're to be childlike. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's humility he's thinking of. Humility that's the opposite of pride and independence. Humility that's happy being least and last. Humility that has nothing to prove. That's children. And especially with respect to God. Humility is seen in trusting dependence. Trusting dependence when you enter into God's kingdom but also trusting dependence every day after. Humility on the way in recognises that it's by grace alone that you're saved. It's nothing to do with you. And it's humility that recognises it's grace that keeps you in God. Humility brings everything to God daily in prayer because you recognise that He's the one who's able but you're unable. But what's impossible with people is possible with God. That's humility. Humility brings you in, but more than that, once you're in, humility is central to the whole character of God's kingdom. Once you're in, Jesus wants you to work at listening and following the rhythm of the kingdom, that that rhythm of childlike humility. Catch it. Sing along. Jesus says, verse 4, that the humble, if you catch it, if you hear it, the humble are actually the greatest in the kingdom. They're at the top of the tree. They're at the centre. They're most central to the purposes of God's kingdom. This idea that humility makes you great, it just seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Humility makes you great. We, don't, we can hardly understand it. In, in a world where we honour the powerful and the attractive, the fastest, the richest, the most talented, the greatest are the pop star, the sportsman, the millionaire. We honour the life of the party, the centre of attention, the one with the most Instagram followers. They're the greatest, aren't they? It's counterintuitive until you stop and think about the Christians you most respect. Just think about that for a moment. Who's a Christian that you really respect? I'm pretty sure you would describe them as humble, meek, self-effacing, probably gifted and successful in their own way, but always interested in listening to others. Never keen to push themselves forward, always wanting to build up others rather than to speak, always willing to offer advice and compliments rather than seeking them. They'd never consider themselves great, and yet they're the ones we respect. They're the ones who Jesus is saying are central in God's kingdom. Be like them, says Jesus. Make it your ambition to imitate them. In fact, I think Jesus is actually saying, verse 4, it's good to be ambitious. It's good to want to be great. To be great in God's kingdom, though. To be great in God's kingdom, you need to turn your expectations upside down because the way to work at being great is completely different to the way the world does it. To become great in the world, you have to push yourself forward at every opportunity and drag others down while you do it. But the way to be great in the kingdom is to become childlike, to learn to listen carefully to Jesus, to hear the kingdom rhythm that he's beating out and learn to follow along, to learn to deny yourself, to take up your cross each day. To learn to step out of the boat and fix your eyes on Jesus and trust Him that you won't sink. To learn to pray daily, Your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. To learn to put others first, to listen to others first, to care for others first. That's the way to become great. Well, Jesus goes on to give more detail what it actually looks like when you're living in this kingdom of humility. First, it'll mean welcoming little ones, verse 5. Welcoming little ones. Become like little ones, that'll bring you in. Once you're in, welcome little ones. Verse 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. The kingdom of heaven welcomes little ones because that's God's character. God loves little ones. All the way through the Old Testament. His special concern is for the weak, the humble, the orphan, the widow, the child, the foreigner, the broken. God's heart is for the little one. And then Jesus comes along and he heals all who come to him, whoever's in pain. He heals the demon-possessed, the blind, the paralysed. At the end of chapter 9, he has compassion on the people because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In chapter 11, he explains the nature of this kingdom, the nature of his kingship. Uh, And he says uh, to the people who bring him John the Baptist's question, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Here's what the kingdom's like. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Good news is preached to the poor. That's what the kingdom's like. And he invites those who are listening to him, can you hear the rhythm of that? Can you pick it up? Can you learn to, can you learn to play along? A few verses further on, he says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. And then he invites those little ones. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for yourselves. That's the heart of Jesus. Humility. That's the heart of his kingdom. Humility. And he wants us to learn from him, the king of the kingdom, So to be great in the kingdom means to be like the king. It means being humble. And so that's why Jesus calls for us to welcome these little ones. Uh, Verse 5, don't just become them, welcome them. We're to welcome them in Christ's name. Uh, To welcome them in, in Christ's name means to, I think, welcome because of Christ. Because he would welcome them. And we're doing it on his behalf because we're reflecting his priorities and his character. And when we do that, when we welcome children in Christ's name, Jesus says that's the same as welcoming Jesus himself. When we honour and value and welcome little ones, we're honouring and valuing and welcoming Jesus himself, because we're doing the things he loves. When we serve others, we're actually serving Jesus. Welcoming kids is important and significant as welcoming Jesus himself, the king of the kingdom. You're not doing something unimportant when you welcome children. You're doing something as important as welcoming a king. That's how important they are, says Jesus. Uh, Which means he will jealously protect them as well. That's verse 6. Verse 6 is the flip side of verse 5. Jesus loves it when we welcome little ones. And, it may, and he will also defend anyone uh, defend these little ones from anyone who harms them, verse six. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Uh, that word, translated "cause to sin," is, is about uh, is to do with causing people to stumble. So it's, it's, it's broader in meaning than just leading someone to sin. It's the same word that Jesus used about Peter when he called him a stumbling block. You're causing me to stumble. You're, you're tempting me. Uh, when Peter said to Jesus, "Get behind," uh, when uh, Jesus said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." You're a stumbling block to me. Uh, We saw it in uh, chapter 17. Jesus sends Peter off to catch a fish so with a coin in the mouth. Do you remember that story? Uh, And why does he do it? It's so that he doesn't offend people. It's the same word. It's so that he doesn't cause people to stumble. And so Jesus is saying that we need to gently protect little ones and avoid doing anything that would lead them astray, that might damage them. We need to watch what we say, how we act. We need to be careful what we teach them. But we're not so blind as to think that the church is immune from things that will damage kids. Uh, I think a generation ago, People thought, oh, child abuse can't possibly happen in churches. But, but we can't say that. We, and, and in fact, Jesus doesn't say that. Did you notice Jesus' words in verse 7? Such things must come. Things that cause kids to stumble must come. They're terrible words, aren't they? The stories that have come out of the Royal Commission for Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, those stories have been horrifying. But the the Royal Commission was good and necessary. It needed to happen. Because it's shining a light on the darkness. Evil loves darkness. We need to shine a light on those that have caused people to stumble. It's verses like this, it's this attitude of Jesus which is why the Presbyterian Church works so hard at child protection. We make sure everyone who has access to kids or to vulnerable people are trained and screened. We follow guidelines that make churches places where it's difficult for those who want to damage kids to have access to kids. Our policies, our ways of doing things are open and transparent. Every activity is open to observation. Every door is open. Everything's always done in the sight of others. And it's this jealous, loving protection of little ones by Jesus that's reflected in the hard work of people like Alyssa. Is Alyssa still here or is she out with the kids? Uh, Alyssa works for CPU, the the Presbyterian organisation that actually investigates child abuse allegations in our churches and schools. Peter Christopher spends hours making sure everyone in our church is up to date and our systems are in order. It's this attitude of Jesus that we reflect when we affirm that we wanna know the truth about what might have happened. We won't hide things simply because of the sake of the church's reputation. And without a second thought, we'll hand over to the authorities, those who are guilty uh, of damaging kids. We do it because we love kids. We want to protect them like Jesus does. But Jesus isn't just interested in kids. Uh, We all enter the children humbly like children. We all become like children. And so Jesus wants to protect us as well. He he wants to protect us from stumbling. Uh, We are little ones. And so in verses 8 and 9, he gives us some warnings, some protection to uh, prevent us from stumbling. He wants us to take drastic action to avoid things that might damage us. So verses 8, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. This is Jesus' loving warning. Little one, he says, get rid of the influence or the temptation that might lead you to stumble. Drastic action is required because the consequences are horrific. He's not literally saying to cut your hand off, so please don't hear me saying that. I think that's fairly obvious, but but he's not saying that. This is hyperbole. Jesus is saying drastic action is required. If you're tempted, get rid of that thing that's causing you to be tempted. Walk down a different street. Make some new friends. Get rid of the old friends. Find some new friends. Move south, Move suburbs. Change jobs. Throw away your computer. It sounds horrible when Jesus says you might you know, cut off your hand. We think, ooh, that's horrible, but I think that's the point, Uh, because being thrown into hell is far worse than losing a hand, and Jesus' loving warning is to watch out, take drastic action. We've seen that we are to imitate little ones, welcome little ones, protect little ones, and finally, uh, from verse 10, we're to value little ones, to not look down on them. Uh, See that you don't, verse 10, see that you don't look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Little ones are valuable in God's eyes. I think that's the point of the description about their angels. It's a fascinating verse, isn't it? Uh, The angels who see God's face. Uh, He loves these little ones so much, he's organised the very best protection for them. And then the parable of the lost sheep makes a similar point. Jesus says, none of you human shepherds would just write off a lost sheep. You wouldn't say, no, well, you wouldn't do that. It's bad business. You wouldn't say, oh, well, what's one? I've got another 99. Nobody does that. It's his livelihood. That's one one one-hundredth of his, his assets. He's going to search it out. That's just good business sense. And Jesus' point is, if that's what we would do, how much more does your Father in Heaven not want to lose any of his little ones? The motto of the US Army, apparently, Army Rangers, is leave no one behind. Leave no one behind. It's sort of disputed uh, whose motto it actually is and where it started. But it's a great motto, isn't it? Leave no one behind. It's about rescuing wounded or captured soldiers. And in a sense, that's God's motto, at least here in this story. Leave no one behind. He will go to any lengths for each little one who's strayed. In fact, he did go to any length, didn't he? He loved the world so much that he sent his only son so that you, you little one, wouldn't perish but have eternal life. That's how much he values you. So let's make sure we value the little ones God has given us not just the children, in some ways that's easy, but the poor and the sick and the weak and the old and the annoying and the smelly and the awkward. Each one is God's little one. Become a little one. Welcome little ones. Protect and value little ones. That's the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be all of these things for your honour and glory. Amen.